Today's episode is brought to you by the American Society of Magical Negroes, a fresh satirical comedy about a secret society of magical black people starring Justice Smith, David Allen Greer, Ann Lee Bogan, and Nicole Byer. As an official selection of Sundance 2024, the American Society of Magical Negroes has been heralded by critics as an uproariously sharp-edged satire and a must-see. Now playing only in theaters. Visit the American Society of Magical Negroes film.com to get tickets now. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. The Harvey Weinstein scandal was first brought to light in October of 2017 by Megan Toohey and Jody Cantor in The New York Times. Just one week later, Ronan Farrow's expose on Weinstein was published in The New Yorker. And just when you thought you may be suffering from Harvey Weinstein fatigue... My guest today, Ken Oletta, is out with a new book that is very much worth reading. Oletta explores how Harvey got away with it for so long. He names those who either looked the other way or enabled Weinstein to commit his various sexual crimes. Ken Oletta has had a remarkable career as a journalist, a New Yorker contributor, and the author of 13 books. His latest is Hollywood Ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Ken Oletta is known as a profiler of industry titans, Silicon Valley heavyweights, and media moguls. I wanted to know why he felt this book was an important addition to such a heavily reported story. Well, there were still mysteries to me about Harvey, and as brilliant a work as Jody Cantor and Meg Tui and Rona Farrow performed, they exposed him and broke the dam of silence, which was great. But the mysteries included what made Harvey Weinstein the monster he was? What explains the culture of silence that enabled him to abuse women for more than four decades? What was the nature of his power and his abuse of power that made people so frightened? And what was the nature of the relationship and how it changed between he and his younger brother, Bob, who were inseparable and business partners? And in the end, Bob Weinstein fired his brother, Harvey. Yeah. So I was interested, I was interested in the biography. Well, that to me is because I read Cantor and Tui's book, They Were on the Show. That's what's so clear in your book, which was the enabling how did all these people, dozens and scores of people who knew 
I mean, you know, with Harvey, it's a combination. And these are glib phrases. I'm so uncomfortable employing any of these phrases because they're tossed around so regularly now. But with Harvey, it, it's the toxic masculinity and the sexual predation. There are men who possess a toxic masculinity who do not victimize women that way. They just bluster and scream, Rudin. There was never an allegation that Rudin sexually harassed anybody that I know of, but like Harvey, he was throwing things at people and screaming at people and so forth. And the thing that I was really taken with your book was this idea of how Harvey is the is really the last of a breed of men who could scream their way and pound tables and behave the way they did in, in order to achieve their results and bully people. I mean, this level of bullying that was like unseen. Harvey, women who were abused by him, raped by him, said that they were in the room with him alone. They were terrified that he would lose his temper because when he lost his temper, he was out of control. Harvey has an impulse control problem, and he had it in eating. I mean, he has severe diabetes, and yet he shovels chocolate into his mouth mm. all the time. I mean, he spent money which he shouldn't have spent, and the company was losing money in the end, in part because of his extravagant spending, and his abuse of women, and of people just verbally was just he couldn't control his impulses. And so people were terrified of that. But they were terrified he had real power. He had power with the press. He was perceived as a, as a figure who can get stories on his behalf in the press and against you. They knew he would sue them if they challenged him in any way and would go at them very aggressively. If you just look at who, was, who attended Harvey's second wedding to, to Georgina Chapman, <clears throat> Rupert Murdoch, his two daughters were flower girls, Lorne Michaels, executive producer of Saturday Night Live, the head of NBC, uh, then Jeff Zucker, the head of the parent company of NBC, Roberts. Brian Roberts. I mean, you just look at that powerhouse of people who were in his relationship, and you had to be afraid. Well, the, the thing that also is interesting to me is all of these things, or some of these things, I should say, that you delve into in the book. Now, I'll do my best to encapsulate all things Harvey that happened to me in one week at Cannes. I go to Cannes. This is in uh, 2012. Uh, we're there, and I'm going to host the Amphar auction. He was on the board. Twenty. He ran the whole show. 20 different designers have contributed clothing to what they call the black-on-black -black, uh, ensemble. I'm going to be the MC. We're going to go do an interview for the film at the party of Len Blavatnik at the Ducap. And then we get a phone call telling us that Blavatnik has canceled and he was requested by Harvey to cancel to keep us away from the party. We were going to go there with one camera and interview everybody at the party about Ken. Harvey kills it. I'm sitting at a table at a cocktail party. Uh, no, but a brunch. And I, someone informs me that Blavatnik has canceled. And I say, that fucking Harvey, he's the biggest asshole in, all, in this whole fucking town. And a writer from the Wall Street Journal is right there, and he writes it in the paper the next day. Now, Harvey says, you either apologize to me publicly that you said that, or you're not invited to the Amphar event. You can't be the host of the, of the thing like I really care. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to apologize. And then they said, then you can't be the MC." Now, one of the producers of our film, Larry Herbert, bought a table. Larry buys a table, and they say, you can't come to the event. I go, are you in the habit of telling people that bought $250,000 tables to your event that they can't bring their guests? I'm coming as his guest. So I came, and then at the behest of my wife, 
who's far more dag hammer show than I'll ever be in my life, she says, go and apologize to Harvey. I walk up to Harvey's table, because he had said, you know, how would you like it if your daughters read things that you, someone said about you? You know what that's like. So I walk up to Harvey's table, and I said, I want to say I'm sorry. And he literally lunges for his phone, calls up a contact of the New York Post, and says, I want you to say that into the phone. He thrusts the phone at me so that the person on the other end of the phone from the New York Post can hear me make the apology to Harvey so that they could print it in the paper. He gave book contracts to people who worked at the New York Post, gave a screenwriter, a screenplay contract to Richard Johnson when he edited page six. What Harvey, among his reasons for his power in the press, he had talk books and talk magazine, and of course he gave out screenplays. So Richard Johnson, who was the editor of Page Six, I know him he, well. He had given a, a, a screenwriting um, contract to, and several editors at the, of Page Six had gotten book contracts over the years with Harvey, as did Meeker and Joe, you know, Tim Russett, who produced the bestseller, by the way, and some other, and other journalists. So, that, again, that was all a pattern of Harvey's power. Everything was transactional. Yeah. Everything was transactional. Including his sex. I mean, I, I, the question I asked him, we had an email exchange when he was in prison, and I could ask him any questions, and he answered about 25 of them. But the question he didn't, one of the questions he did not answer is the one I was desperate to ask. Harvey, when you put your head on a pillow at night after raping, let's say, Jessica Mann, who was a woman who testified against him, how did you explain to yourself what you had just done? He never answered that question, but I think if he had, he would say it was transactional. She wanted something from me, a career in Hollywood, and I wanted something from her. So everything with him is transactional, but I, I do go back. that I look at people and I think about alternatives. I think about what might have been. And in your book, you paint this wonderful picture of their ascension and Buffalo and the concert business and Harvey screaming at a room full of people to watch the French film. He shows these other films, but and you realize that beyond his sexual issues, beyond his criminality, is that Harvey was also a monster to work with in terms of him wanting to control the content of the film. But that doesn't take away the fact he loved movies. And was good at it. He loved movies. And he could have been a great... Because the world we live in now, every single man and woman who runs the production sides of a movie studio or a television network today are all for marketing or finance. They don't know a thing about making movies. They don't, there's not one person today in charge of a movie studio or a television network who knows anything about putting together a TV show creatively or zero DNA creatively. Zero. Every one of them, top to bottom. So in the old days, going back to Zanuck, going back to Mike Medavoy, uh, Rudin, I think, was a creative beast. Absolutely. Uh, and Harvey, I mean, you look at Harvey, you go, what a tragedy, because he really did love films. You look at the films he produced or distributed, starting with his first hit, you know, Sex, Lives, and Videotape, and then going to The Crying Game, which was the reason it was, its success was the reason that Disney decided they had to acquire Miramax, which they did in 93. My Left Foot, Shakespeare in Love, The English Patient, I mean, the list goes 81 Academy Awards. So Harvey was the real thing. He wasn't a suit, but even the people who he abused, like Gwyneth Paltrow, or her then-boyfriend, Brad Pitt, who threatened to kill Harvey if he ever touched her again, continued to do movies with him. Why? Why? Because he was producing the kind of movies they wanted to be in, right. and no one else was. Right. Another thing you get into in great detail is Bob. Now, I've met Bob 
on a number of occasions where I used to run into him periodically in a certain part of town. I would just bump into him for some reason. And, and in my bogus psychoanalytic way, I look at him and think, oh God, you just walk around all day with the burden of being Harvey Weinstein's brother. I mean, you're his partner. And I want to ask you about that in terms of that bond, meaning all brothers have a bond, presumably, very few don't, but almost none have a bond as thick as that bond. I mean, in the end, you know, Harvey goes down and Bob is part of that. Why do you think Bob waited so long before he took that opportunity? I, Bob had this uh, contradictory feelings about his brother. On the one hand, he loved him and was his. they shared a room in Queens growing up. They went up to Buffalo in the same time. They became co-equal partners in Miramax and then the Weinstein Company. Uh, they dominated. No one can get between the two brothers. And yet Bob, over the years, Harvey would treat him as Bobby, the young mm. kid, as Harvey's friends often, often did. And Bob took it. And some days he felt, I got to divorce my brother. Some days he said, my brother really loves me. I think he was somewhat insecure about his relationship with Harvey, who was the more dominant person. Bob then had an alcohol problem and went to AA and became a very introspective person who believed in therapy. And he became a better person because of that. Harvey, he would constantly say, Harvey, you're a sex addict. You should get some help. He said he didn't know Harvey was raping women. He knew he was cheating on his wife. By the way, which is what all of Harvey's assistants and people who worked there said. We knew he was cheating on his wife, but we didn't know he was raping women. Well, some, as my book shows, did know he was, he was raping. But nevertheless, Bob went through this thing, should I divorce my spouse or should I not? Or maybe he really still loves me and it'll work out okay. In the end, in 2015, Bob was constantly berating his brother for overspending and for losing focus on the movie business, getting into fashion, getting into TV, buying companies he shouldn't be buying like Halston and stuff like that. And Harvey got so enraged that he sucker punched his brother and broke his nose in 2015. Mm -hmm. But Bob still made peace with him. And then in the end, when Harvey was exposed by Jody Cantor and Meg Toohey in October of 2017 and by Ronan, you know, a week later in The New Yorker, Bob provided the critical vote to fire his brother. And yet, interestingly, what happened is that because his name, as you mentioned earlier, was Weinstein, he also was punished as Harvey was. Harvey went on trial, but Bob couldn't get a job, couldn't get an agent, couldn't get a lawyer in Hollywood because his name was Weinstein. The, the thing about your book, I'm not saying this was your intention, but what I took from this was that Bob stayed loyal to Harvey until Harvey's behavior actually was going to sink the company and rob Bob of his share of, a, of a, what was once a very healthy business. Meaning, you punch me in the face, that's one thing. You rape women, that's another thing. All the things you do that are wrong are nothing. But now I'm going to lose my shares of stock in the company. Because well, if you were behaving, I, I mean, I wonder if there was a bit of that with Bob. Was there like, has to have been a bit of that, but I don't think that's all of it. You do, yeah, no, no, I want to say it's all of it. I, but I wonder if it, with Bob, all of a sudden he went on to protect his I mean, money. the truth is, what Har Harvey's behavior and the aftermath of that sunk Bob as well as the company. Company declared bankruptcy. Right. Bob, it was over for Bob. And yet Bob was a more successful financially producer with his Dimension films than Harvey was. Yeah, Bob, in the beginning, people said Bob made the money, not Harvey. Do you think it was possible for Harvey to get a fair trial? That's a good question. You know, 
I sat in, it was one, I, was, I, I attend the trial every day, and I sat in the jury selection process. And these jurors would come in and fill the room about 120 or so at a time. And the judge asked, how many of you think, raise your hand if you think you could not be fair to Mr. Weinstein? One third of the hands went up. So people knew about Harvey the Ogre going in. And that begs the, your question, which is, is it possible that he couldn't find fair-minded jurors who didn't have an opinion before they sat in judge? Eventually, the 12 jurors selected said they could sit in fair judgment. But there were questions about that. In Harvey's appeal, they questioned juror number 11, who was a woman who had written a, a, book, a novel that was coming out in the summer of 2020, a couple months after the trial, but it was already done, about an older man who was a sexual predator. And they said, if you have such strong opinions about that, how can you judge fairly this Harvey Weinstein? And the defense made that argument, and the judge overruled them and kept them in. That was part of their appeal. So there were questions about Harvey had a very strong appeal, I thought, in reading it. And I wonder whether the, the appellate division would overturn the New York City Criminal Court. But in the end, the five justices, who were all women, by the way, who asked more tough questions of the prosecutor in the appeal than they did of, of Harvey's defense, unanimously voted that it was a fair trial and that Harvey deserved to go to prison and deserved to be sentenced for 23 years. Now, one area you go on trial and you say to people, these women had sex with him, claimed they were raped, and then associated with him and even socialized with him after the fact. Four of the six did. Right. What research did you do? Who were you able to speak with, if anybody, about that concept of the victims continuing their relationship with their oh, oppressor? Oh, a, a lot. I, I report and write a fair amount about that. The biggest obstacle the prosecution had to prosecute Harvey successfully was how do you explain why these women who claimed to have been abused by him were so ambitious that they continued to keep in touch with him and in two cases actually continued to have sex with him. And so the prosecution, what the prosecution did was on the witness stand, they called Dr. Barbara Ziv of Temple University, an expert on rape. She testified in the Bill Cosby trial and she testified in this trial on behalf of the prosecution. And she cited one fact that just punched the jury and punched me as well in the nose. She said 40% of women in America who are raped continue to have a relationship either friendly or sexually with the person who raped them. And that was very compelling. And then the women mm. on the stand, the six women who testified, they all talked about the different reasons why they kept quiet. I was afraid he would attack me in the press or sue me. He, mm. I signed a non-disclosure agreement. I was in denial that it ever happened. I blame myself for it happening. They gave various reasons. Ultimately, the prosecution was able to take their biggest weakness and turn it into a strength. And Harvey, who thought, his defense thought they really had a good case. And it is a, it's a compelling argument. How could these women explain why they were continuing to have well, the relationship? Well, at the very least, it's confusing for a lay audience. Precisely. But then it goes to your point about 
where the trial took place. Harvey's lawyers argued that with the court, you should move the trial to another jurisdiction like Albany or upstate New York and out of New York. Right. (laughs) And actually, one of his lawyers said to whispered to me, he said, you know, one of the dangers with that is you get more anti-Semitism in more rural areas. And maybe Harvey would have been even more vulnerable Mm -hmm. there. But in any case, that was an argument they made. They certainly argued that after he was indicted in Los Angeles during the trial in New York, you should take a break for a few a few weeks because the press was writing about Harvey being indicted and it was going to corrupt the juror's mind. You look at someone like Harvey and whatever your concept of justice is, here's a man who's in a situation now where he can't do anything that he wants to do. He's in that reality where you don't do anything that you want to do. To balance out the fact that he was a man who for decades did everything he wanted to do, regardless of cost, impact. He wanted to shove the M&Ms in his mouth in spite of his diabetes. He did it. He wanted to have sex with a woman. He threw her on the ground and he raped her. He wanted to get out of a business deal. He ND, I mean, all of the things, the levers and the knobs and the dials and the switches of the control freak. There's probably never been a control freak alive in human history to equal Harvey Weinstein in terms of what he did to everyone in his environment. And now he's sitting in a place where, (laughs) I mean, I'm I'm assuming he's medicated to a fare-thee-well. He's in a wheelchair. He has stenosis in in a hospital ward of a prison now in L.A. because he goes on trial in October of of this year. But he was in a prison. Are you covering that? No, I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to spend I'm another so minute. I'm so glad you said that. Oh, Ken, please write a different book. <laughs> I have no interest in right, Harvey's right, right. past tense. Right. But in any case, he's sitting there. He has severe diabetes. As we talk. He has a stent in his heart. He has high cholesterol. He's blind in one eye. I mean, and he eats baked beans. So, I mean, I mean, people ask me, do I feel sorry for Harvey? The answer is no, I don't feel sorry for him. But I feel, as a human being, I wonder how... The pain he must be going through. The problem with Harvey, I mean, and this is a problem I talk about in the book in terms of Me Too. We group everyone who is accused of any kind of sexual offense with Harvey. But grouping everyone with Harvey is quite unbelievable. And yet we do that. And so if you're Matt Lauer or Mike Oreskes or, you know, whoever, you group with him. And the truth is very few people are as guilty as he was of doing the awful things he did. Larry Nassar, the gymnast mm. doctor, was. But very few others are... Cosby. Cosby was. When the person is talking to you when they're interviewing you, that person's elan, that person's intellectual vanity or their ability to conceal that, because they're probably as smart, if not smarter, than many of the people they're talking to because of their career. Do you think being this very polished man makes your job easier. You don't give off that energy field of aggression and zealotry. There's a there's an aura to you that's very relaxed and very composed. You're a very handsome guy. I think personality matters, particularly when you want personality and appearance matters. Right, right. When you're trying to get someone to talk to you. And the other thing that matters is being a good listener. If you go into an interview like a dentist, I want to drill your teeth. Mm-hmm then no one's going to talk to you. Mm-hmm. They don't want to go through pain. So I begin my interviews on the on several assumptions. I assume this, if I'm profiling someone, it's going to be many interviews I'm going to have with this person, not just one. So that first interview, I'm not drilling teeth. I'm actually asking questions about your childhood. 
where you grew up. Tell me about your parents. Tell me about your dreams as a kid. Now, you, you, someone might think that's manipulative, but in fact becomes incredibly valuable to me to understand that person. And therefore, they relax some more. People will talk. If you convey to them that you're not playing gotcha, that you're not on edge and you're looking for some angle, some headline tomorrow, and people will be more comforting. But when you have Donald Trump out there saying, and increasingly Republicans saying, I'm not going to talk to these people because this is fake news. Our misbehavior has contributed to allowing Donald Trump and some Republicans to make that argument about fake news and we can't trust reporters. And I mean, I saw, I think when you think about journalism and what the big worries are, it's the fact that there's no more universal facts. People don't trust the journalists, but they don't trust facts. And if you get, if the you watch Fox world, News, yeah. yeah, if you Fox News, you get one set of facts, New York Times, you get another. And you can't bridge the gap between the two. I'll now go on from this interview on to admit that I stole everything from you. Because that's what I do. The people I work with, my producer, we call it, we call the first question the billiard break. How do I line up all the shots on the table from the one question that we're going to start with, which is going to open you up? Precisely. And the thing is, if you think that I'm lunging for it, if you think I'm trying to take it from you, I've got to relax and wait for you to give it to me. Right. And what I always say, I'll never forget, when I, when I interviewed, when I did a profile of Rupert Murdoch in 94, and Murdoch had reason to suspect me. When he took over New York Magazine, I quit rather than work for him. And I've been critical of his journalism. And yet he agreed to cooperate with me and open himself more than he ever had with any reporter over four months for The New Yorker. And one of the things I said to him in that first interview, which is something I say to everyone I'm, I'm going to profile, my job is to understand you. And I'm going to open myself so I, I can understand you. And I really believe that. I'm not there to prosecute Rupert Murdoch. I'm here to understand him. And in the end, when I understood tell him... Me. Tell, I said, tell me. When I understood him in the end, he hated the profile. It was called The Pirate, and he should have, because his, his invidious influence on journalism... I mean, he's really been a harmful influence on journalism, and I reported that. But I think as a businessman and what he does, how bold he is, is he's a fascinating character, and I'm going to capture that side of him as well. Which profile for you, because you've written these long pieces, which profile, give me an example of one that was really tough, like you eventually, you had to employ all your artistry to get this person to talk to you? Well, actually, uh, the worst human being I've ever met or profile was Roy Cohn. And it was actually the cover story of Esquire magazine in 1978. And Roy Cohn refused to cooperate with me. And so what I did, it's like a prosecutor would do in plea bargaining. I would say, okay, I called Stanley Friedman, who was a law partner, who was a Bronx County Democratic leader, who later went to jail, by the way, for corruption. I, I called Stanley Friedman, who I knew and I'd covered before. I said, Stanley, I can't believe Roy Cohn, your partner, wants me just to talk to his adversaries and enemies. Because that's what's going to happen. If he shuts down his friends and him... And within five minutes, Roy Cohn called me on the phone and then cooperated. But to spend time with this disgusting man, who, by the way, you, you, the first interview we did at the 21 Club at lunch, where he had a table, and I order a 21 burger and french fries. He orders nothing. He's sitting next to me in a banquette, and with his little hands, he would reach into my plate and take french fries off my plate and just... 
just eat off my plate, right. basically, as yeah. a total stranger, and sit there looking around the room. He sees Bess Meyerson. He sees other people he represented. He said, let me tell you about them. And he would literally betray his former clients to, in order to entice me as a journalist. He was a gossip Thinking monger. that I was in. Oh, it was disgusting. Yeah. It was disgusting. What do you think made him tick? He had an ideology, uh, you know, in the end, uh, which was, you know, McCarthy, the, the Reds are taking over the country. We got to stop that. But he also had a lot of Democratic friends. His father was a Democratic judge in the Bronx. And he had Democratic friends, childhood friends, et cetera, who he continued to support. So he was loyal to them, which is a bit of a complication with him. But I think it was also power. He loved the fact he goes to Donald Trump, who I also interviewed in that point, who said, Roy Cohn is my mentor. And he, he sees Donald Trump at a social club, and Donald Trump says, oh, Mr. Cohn, can I ask you a question? He said, you know, we have this case where we're accused by the federal government of discriminating in housing at Trump properties in our apartment houses. What do we do about that? And he says, let me look at it. He says, this is all they have, the federal government? He said, I'll represent you. And we'll win the case. Don't worry about it. Well, he lost the case, but he did something that was very Trumpian. He announced, even though they lost the case, that we won the case, even though they were fined over $100 million. He announced that they won because they were not demanded to plead guilty. They didn't have to plead guilty. So therefore, we didn't plead guilty. We won the case. Well, they actually lost the case. but And Trump forever went on that route of never apologizing, never admitting defeat. Author Ken Oletta. If you'd like to know more about the reporters who broke the Harvey Weinstein story, listen to my conversation with Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy from The New York Times. We interviewed him several times. I think that we were able to see in person sort of the spectrum of his behavior, that he would swing from kind of charm and compliments and kind of ingratiating himself and like, well, the New York Times, it's the best paper in the world. And in terms of how he was able to prey on women, I think that that is a separate question from how he was able to sort of keep people in his orbit and maintain his power. That really is one of the most important questions is that there were actually people who got glimpses of his alleged misconduct over the years. And what did they do about it? How can we explain the fact that there were so many individuals and institutions, including his own companies, that became complicit in his abuse? Hear the rest of my conversation with Jody Cantor and Megan Tuohy in our archives at heresthething.org. After the break, Ken Oletta discusses Ronan Farrow's early findings on Weinstein and his theories on why NBC killed Farrow's story. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now. 
and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I dot And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hey guys, it's Ray from the Bobby Bone Show here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new SUV like an adventure-ready RAV4. Let's go! Available with all-wheel drive, your new RAV4 is built for performance on any terrain from the road to the hills to the trails all over. And with plenty of passenger and cargo space, plus available tech like wireless charging, and your entire crew can stay connected. Or check out a stylish and comfortable Highlander, with three spacious rows of seating, up to eight passengers, yeah. And with available features like the panoramic moonroof, you can sit back and enjoy the wide-open views with your whole family. Plus, both RAV4s and Highlanders are available in hybrid models, so no matter your style, you can drive efficiently and save on gas. Visit your local Toyota dealer, check out amazing national sales event deals on RAV4s, Highlanders, and more. Visit buyatoyota.com. That's buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Ken Oletta's most recent book digs into how Harvey Weinstein manipulated countless people to conceal his shocking levels of abuse. I was curious why Weinstein's wife at the time, Georgina Chapman, didn't speak out against Harvey. Well, you know, she wouldn't talk to me, nor would Eve Chilton, his first wife. Uh, And I found out that they each signed, as did Harvey, non-disclosure agreements. So they were, Harvey was not allowed to talk about them. They're not allowed to talk about him without sacrificing significant financial support. But I talked to their friends for the book, and their friends say that each of them did not know he was cheating on them, and each of them actually loved him. I mean, most people who know Harvey find both claims to be absurd. Right. Uh, but nevertheless, you know, they did. Uh, that's what they said. So well, I just was thinking in the hell hath no fury department, but apparently NDAs trump that. Yeah. And Eve Chilton, his first wife, right. doesn't talk to him. Right. Their three daughters who were adopted don't talk to him mm. now. Mm. And his brother doesn't talk to him. And Georgina Chapman politely will talk to him, but obviously not now in prison. But their two kids obviously can't visit him. He was a good, apparently a good father, I found out in the reporting I did. But, you know, Harvey is alone in prison without friends, without a family. Mm. Um, You touch upon Ronan Farrow and his MSNBC period. Why do you think NBC is courting and massaging and treating Ronan Farrow like he's a piece of Kobe beef over there, and then they cut his throat and they won't air, air his story? Well, obviously, they had some desire to protect Harvey. And Ronan, actually, I was, when Ronan interviewed me about Harvey, I was worried that he was a zealot because of the Woody Allen thing. Mm-hmm. And yet when he interviewed me, I was impressed that he was acting like a journalist. He was asking good questions. He was judicious was the word mm-hmm. I later used to recommend him to David Remnick. And I said, so he comes out here. To, I, he said, I need to interview you more 
about Harvey. I'd given him my tape recordings and stuff for my 2002 profile in The New Yorker. I said, you have to come out here to Birchham because I'm finishing a book. He comes out. I said, so what do you got? It's like a three or four hour interview. And he says, I have three women on camera claiming that Harvey abused them by name. I've got five women on camera but shielded, their identity shielded, saying Harvey abused them. And I've got the audio tape of the Italian model who Harvey admitted he grabbed her breasts. It's a police audio tape. Mm -hmm. I said, oh, my God, you've broken the case. I said, what's the next step? He said, I meet with Noah Oppenheim, the president of NBC News, mm -hmm. on August 8th, summer of 2017. So on August 18th, I called Ronan because I said, I was really excited that finally someone's going to nab this pick. And he says, they killed it. And they said, you can take it anywhere, but who would want it, he said. Uh, and it wasn't a question. He believed that it was over. I said, Ronan, can I call you back? I called Remnick, the editor of The New Yorker, and I said, David, I think this kid, Ronan Farrow, who I thought was judicious, has broken the case finally, the case I couldn't break in 2002, and I tried to. And he says, have him call me Monday. So it begs the question, which I later reported for the book, why did NBC kill the Ronan Farrow story? So I'm doing Morning Joe one morning, and someone comes up to me from NBC, would you meet with this high muckamuck at NBC News? And But off the record, where you can't quote the person. I said, sure. So I've never used the person's name. So we go to lunch, and this person tells me, Ronan didn't have the goods. He, he, he only had the goods exposing Harvey after he came to The New Yorker. And so the press at the time played it like a he said, she said story. NBC says this, Ronan says the opposite. They negate each other. But there was a third party you could go to, which is The New Yorker. So I went to the person who edited him at The New Yorker, Deirdre. And I called Deirdre, and I said, Deirdre, tell me what did Ronan bring to The New Yorker when he came in August of 2017 for a piece that wouldn't appear until October. She said he brought three women by name, brought five women unnamed but nevertheless, and the audio tape. So he had everything. And so I then speculate in the book, well, what could explain NBC's acquiescence? And there are five theories. And I don't know which is true or if all of them are true. But nevertheless, one is that Noah Oppenheim is a screenwriter. And he was currying favor with the studio head, Harvey Weinstein. Two is that Steve Burke, the CEO of NBC, head of Universal, does business with Harvey's company all the time. Studios always co-produce and co-finance movies. Third explanation is that Andy Lack, the chairman of NBC News, was he and his wife were social friends of Harvey Weinstein. Fourth reason, Brian Roberts, the head of Comcast, the parent company of NBC, was a social friend, I mean an intimate friend of Harvey's. Martha's Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard Mafia, Harvey called him, one of his Martha, Mafia friends from Martha's Vineyard. And the, the fifth reason, which is, seems more far-fetched than other, is that Harvey knew, had information about Matt Lauer abusing right. women at NBC and made a trade. I won't say anything about Matt Lauer if you don't run the story about, back, yeah. about me. Are any of them true? I don't know. But those are the only explanations that have any plausibility. What's a story that you wrote in your many, many profiles of people that you were surprised, that you learned something about the person, you went in with some sense of them, and when you, when you were done, they changed your mind about I, that? I'll tell you, uh, one of my favorite stories is McClandish Phillips was a New York Times reporter who Gay Talese, the great Gay Talese, says— Who did this show? 
Talese said that the best writer on the New York Times was McClandish Phillips. McClandish Phillips is reporting a story, and he gets a story that the head of the American Nazi Party is a Jew. So he interviews this guy at a diner in Queens. The guy's from Queens. And he sits across from him. He said, you're Jewish. And the guy f is handling a knife, you know, knife and fork. And he's handling it. And McClandish, who's about six foot six, thin, th thinks the guy's going to stab him. The guy doesn't stab him. He said, if you run that story, Mr. Phillips, I will kill myself. So McClendish Phillips goes back to Abe Rosenthal and Arthur Gelb, the editors, senior editors at the New York Times. And he says... Here's the story. And they said, this is a page one story. This is a great story. He said, if you run it, I'm afraid he's going to kill himself. And should we really be doing this? They run the story on page one of the New York Times. The head of the American Nazi Party kills himself. He did. McClandish Phillips resigns from the New York Times, says journalism is too ruthless a business for me. I don't want to do it. He's a, he was an evangelical Christian. Phillips was. He goes, and I hear that he's outside of Columbia University walking, handing out Christ's literature as an evangelical leader. So I said, oh, my God, what a great story. I actually track him down and wind up profiling him for The New Yorker. And he was one of the great men I've ever met in my life. You grew up in Coney Island? Yeah. How many kids in your family? Older brother, younger sister. And, and what We did lived you in a row house on West 17th Street. Father was, uh, he had a little sporting goods store on Civil Avenue. And he'd been a longshoreman before that. My mother's Jewish. And my mother had two sisters who married Italian men, all lived on West 17th Street. And the thought, when the Catholic Church, you go to Catholic Church, and some priest would say, the Jews kill Christ, my father stopped going to church. And because when Jews, you couldn't stereotype. You knew Jewish people, and you knew Italian people. And it overcame all the stereotypes. Yeah. Now, you, where'd you go to high school? Abraham Lincoln High School. Okay, where'd you go to college? State University, that's where you go, only because the baseball coach got me in. It, it, that's what you did. You played baseball there. I played baseball. Play, play school. And, no graduate school, no yeah, law I did. School. I then became a more serious student. I was a screw-up in high school. Right. And I went to Maxwell School at Syracuse University. Got a master. Right. I was in a Ph.D. program. That's where I got a master's. From. Pardon? That's where both my parents and both sets of my grandparents went to S. Really? To, yeah, so did Joe Biden, by the way. So you go to Maxwell for journalism. For political science. Political science. And, and what and, was the plan? The plan was, I thought, you know, maybe I'd be a diplomat or work in government, but not, not politics. And the dean of the school, I, I was writing for the school newspaper. I was the editor of the off-campus literary magazine, uh, investigative magazine, really. And I said, I'm bored. I don't want to be, get a PhD. I don't want to stay here and do that. He introduced me to, to a guy by the name of Howard Samuels. The upstate industrialist, the guy who invented baggies in the plastic clothesline as an engineer at MIT. Right. And so I drove over to Canandaigua, where his business, Cordite, sure. his business was. And I go to work for him as a speechwriter, code holder, travel companion, and then later became his campaign manager in 1974. He was the first Democrat to endorse John Lindsay's independent race for re-election in 1969. And... Lindsay then turns to him and asks, would you run? We're starting the first off-track betting company in the right. country. He was called Howie the Horse. And he ran. I was the executive director. Right. So I was... How it, long did you do that? We did three years. Then I quit to plan his campaign for governor. And when he started as governor, he was 20 points ahead in the poll. Everyone thought he's going to win. He lost. I was the campaign manager by 20 points to you, Carrie. What do you attribute that to? Well, 
what happened was, this is actually one of the most hilarious experiences of my life. His wife was two years old, in, in, born in France, and her father, Camille Chautin, was his name. He was the attorney general of the Vichy government, the pro-Nazi government in right. France. And Carrie's people, David Garth was the empresario behind it, put out that she was defending... She was a, the daughter of a Nazi collaborator. She was, but she was two years old, you know. But she insisted, the wife of the, the candidate, that the campaign should also be not just about my husband, but about restoring my father's good name. I said, no, no, you can't do that. Jewish, Howard's Jewish, you'll get killed. Well, 60% of the Jewish voters in New York State, according to polls, voted for an Irish Catholic. So it's McClandish Phillips all over again with people not wanting you to know and, and my he roots. Got, she dragged him down. Uh, well, the first press conference where Phil Tracy was the person who wrote the story, investigative story in the Village Voice, and he's sitting there at Howard's announcing for governor. Tracy raises his hand, asks the question, tell me about your father-in-law and being an you know, anti-Semite and part of Vichy government. Samuel's this is, he's announcing for governor. He launches this defense of his father-in-law, who he didn't know, right? And I'm sitting there saying, oh, my God, it's over. And, of course, it was over. Oh, my God. Author Ken Oletta. If you're enjoying this conversation, be sure to subscribe to Here's the Thing on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back... Ken Oletta tells us how things at the New Yorker magazine have changed over time. If you struggle to get in shape and lose weight, I'm about to change your life. I'm Carl, the CEO of Body, and I don't like working out and eating healthy either. So here's how I get myself to do it. I make myself own the morning. And by the morning, I mean the first hour or so every day. It's not family time. It's not for scrolling social media. It's for my results and my health. And man, does it work. Every day, I get out of bed, drink a health shake I made the night before, and then I go crush a workout in the body app and just follow along day by day. Before most people are even out of bed, I'm done for the day. So here's my offer to you. The next 500 people who go to body.com will get 65% off a full year of access to over 120 programs. 65% because I want you to start now and see how fast the pounds come off and the muscles start popping. And if they don't, hey, you get your money back. Just go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. And let's own the morning together and get healthy and fit. The following ad is sponsored by Pets Best Insurance Services. Pets come into our lives in many ways. Shelters, breeders, or unexpected encounters. But no matter how you found your pet, they become our perfect match. Unfortunately, finding the right pet insurance plan can be hard. That's where Pets Best comes in. With a little information about you and your pet, Pets Best will recommend a plan that meets your needs and budget. Visit PetsBest.com to learn more today. Your perfect pet deserves the perfect coverage. PetsBest.com. Hey guys, it's Steve Cavino from Cavino and Rich here to tell you the national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new Toyota truck. 
like a rugged half-ton tundra. Workhorse by nature, powerhouse by design, the tundra combines raw capability with premium comfort and advanced tech to fuel your wildest adventures. And with the available iForce Max Hybrid powertrain, you can take electrifying horsepower farther than ever before. Or check out the fully redesigned Tacoma delivering trail-dominating power and captivating style. The new Tacoma was born to make your off-roading dreams come true. And with the new available tech, this legendary truck is getting even better. When you buy a Toyota truck, you buy Toyota dependability, meaning your truck will hold its value long into the future. So visit your local Toyota dealer. Check out the amazing national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota, let's go places. I'm Alec Baldwin, and this is Here's the Thing from iHeartRadio. Ken Oletta's latest book details one of the highest profile cases of the Me Too era, Harvey Weinstein. I was curious about another towering figure who left public life in disgrace, New York's former governor, Andrew Cuomo. First of all, I mean, he had to resign, even though he shouldn't have. The votes were not there. He was going to get impeached if he didn't resign. He was accused of two things, as was Charlie Rose. He was accused of of misbehavior in the office, creating a culture of fear, yelling at people, doing the kind of things that Scott Rudin and Harvey did. He was accused of that. Abusive. Uh, And the other, he was accused of sexual abuse. So the question is, do you believe the first, that he was was not a a friendly place, was hostile? Yes. Is that an impeachable offense that you should quit office for? No. I mean, no. Did he abuse women? Well, if the women have claimed it, I haven't heard a counterclaim that says they're lying. Right. Now, you have had a long career. And these essays in the time, I mean, I am in the New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker junkie that way. Give me a good, long story about so-and-so. And I literally thumb through it and go, it's 30 pages long. This is great. And I just love the New Yorker for those profiles. But um, how have things changed in your business? Well, it, when I, I, started, I was hired by William Sean, who was the editor, the second editor in 1977. And after I quit New York magazine. And, and you quit New York, why? I quit New York because Murdoch did a hostile takeover. And Who was we the editor? Was Felker the editor when you were there? F- Felker was the editor when at New York, there. yes. And Murdoch was going against Felker. And about 40 of us went on strike. And when he succeeded, roughly 40 of us quit. So I, I, I went to started writing for The New Yorker then. The New Yorker then, for instance, my first piece was two parts. I did a piece called The Underclass on Poverty, which was three parts. You don't have two and three part pieces anymore. That's certainly a change. And the assumption is the reader doesn't have that kind of a patience Mm -hmm. to to do that. But the New Yorker's editor since 1998 is David Remnick. He's a brilliant editor and very much in the traditions of the great traditions of the New Yorker. So you can still find a 20,000 word Piece and I just read a piece on on mega yachts. I read that. You know, I mean, I said, look how long this is, but it was totally engrossing to me. After covering someone as unsettling as Harvey in his life, who's your next book going to be about? You know, I view what I do as visiting other planets, get to know the natives and novelty, something different. And so I would see it as visiting another planet, whatever that next planet might be. But it's, go- I'm, it's only going to come about after I've really... Purged this. Not only purged Harvey, but also thought long and hard about, well, do sense? I want to marry this subject? 
So tell me more about the book, The Underclass. It began as a three-part series in The New Yorker, and its aim was to focus on the hardcore poor who were responsible for a disproportionate amount of our crime, disproportionate amount of our welfare dependency, disproportionate amount of drugs, etc. This is in the period of the early 80s and late 70s. And so I set out to find out who these people were who were the hardcore poor who did not escape poor and often entered lives of crime. So I went on spending time with a group of these people, and it was a book called The Underclass. Hollywood ending, Harvey Weinstein and the Culture of Silence. Again, Ken Oletta, this is a great book because when you say the culture of silence, I mean, how this guy was able to get away with this for so long, but uh, your book explains vividly how he was able to evade justice with all the bargaining and horse trading he did almost almost brilliantly. Like, you can't believe how agile this guy was in terms of his, uh, politically speaking. How did he get away with it for so long? So I encourage people to read this book. Thank you, Alec. My thanks to Ken Oletta. Here's The Thing is produced by Kathleen Russo, Zach McNeese, and Maureen Hoban. Our engineer is Frank Imperial. Our social media manager is Daniel Gingrich. I'm Alec Baldwin. Here's the thing is brought to you by iHeartRadio. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals. It's not about being the best in the world. It's about doing what's best for the world. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This is Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. The national sales event is on at your Toyota dealer, making now the perfect time to get a great deal on a dependable new car. Like a legendary Camry built for performance and available with all-wheel drive, you can count on your new Camry to get anywhere you need to go. Or check out an affordable and reliable Corolla with a trim for every lifestyle. From the hip sedan to the sporty hatchback, there's a Corolla built just for you. Check out more national sales event deals when you visit buyatoyota.com. Toyota. Let's go places.